Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike. New episode today with Karen O'Leary. This is a fantastic episode that uh, we recorded a probably a few months ago now. Again, we tend to sometimes record a bunch of episodes in advance and then schedule them as the weeks go by. If you're unfamiliar with Karen O'Leary, Karen O'Leary is a writer, she's an actor, she's a comedian, and a former teacher from New Zealand. She played Officer O'Leary in Taika Waititi's 2014 film, What We Do in the Shadows, one of Will's favourite films. Uh, She is now reprising the role in the spin-off television series, Wellington Paranormal. And uh, in this chat, which is a very, very funny chat, and uh, Karen just brought such an amazing energy uh, when she sat down with Will in this conversation. She talks a lot about her experience as a teacher, how she accidentally fell into acting and left teaching, but also her thoughts on the education system in general and uh, how she thinks it should be changing to accommodate for changing times. Uh, If you like this episode, you may also like an episode we've done with Shelley Ware. Shelley Ware appeared earlier in 2021 on this podcast, and she is also currently a teacher who spoke a lot about her thoughts on the education system and and similar sentiment there. Will is doing his Willegal shows on the 12th and 13th of June at the Wagga Wagga Civic Theatre. Grab your tickets online to that. You can also support Willosophy, patreon.com slash Willosophy. Donate as little as a dollar a month to help keep the podcast running. Two episodes this week, and uh, if we can reach consistent $5,000 a month on the Patreon, then we will be able to put out two episodes regularly, uh, weekly, for you. That is our goal, anyway. Uh, on top of that, you can support our entire network. Willosophy is part of the TOEFOP podcast network, which includes uh, TOEFOP, the podcast with Will and Charlie Clawson, uh, FOFOP, a spin-off of TOEFOP, and Two Guys, One Cup, an AFL-adjacent podcast. If you like footy, go and listen to Two Guys, One Cup. Uh, and support us by going to tofop.com and checking it all out. Before I do pass over to this chat, I just wanted to say uh, sometimes in the age of COVID, we are at the mercy of the internet um, and... Uh, Sometimes the audio quality that we can get from our guests isn't 100% perfect. Karen's audio is really great. Towards the end, uh, some background noise comes in and is slightly distracting, but I'd love to encourage you to stick with it. Uh, It's all still very uh, understandable. It's not like you won't be able to hear what she said. There's just some distracting noise that we have done our best with all the technological processing that we can do to try and... uh, still make it work. So uh, I do apologize for that. And uh, I hope you will stick with it to the end because it is, it is uh, an amazing chat. Okay, here we go. Philosophy with Karen O'Leary. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Me, I'm Karen O'Leary. <laughs> yes, you, the person who's the guest on <laughs> <Yeah>. the show. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yes, Karen O'Leary. That's, that's me. <laughs> Hello, Karen O'Leary. Now, Karen O'Leary is the star of one of, I believe, the funniest television programs there is on television. It's called Wellington Paranormal. 
I love this show so much. It is part of, of course, the extended What We Do in the Shadows universe of shows that they have. And it's an incredibly funny show. Can we just start by talking about this show and how you became an accidental TV star, Karen? So how did you become the star of your own TV show? I just thought it'd be a good idea. You know, I've yep. always thought what I need is a TV show that's got me in it. Um, so I just made that happen, basically, Will. I mean, it wasn't that hard. I mean, you know, no, that's not how it happened. Um, basically, and the story has been told before, but I love to tell it, so I tell it again. Um, I'm an early childhood teacher by trade, or that's my, you know, my chosen passionate profession. And um, one of the parents um, at my work was Tina Cleary, who did the casting for Shadows. And she'd seen me mucking about with, you know, her children, not in that way, just like teaching them. <laughs> Um, and she came up to that's maybe cut that bit out. Um, it's all right, I've quit teaching now, so it doesn't matter. Um, no, <laughs> she came up to me one day and she said, hey, Karen, these two guys are making a vampire movie and they need a couple of cops. You should try out. And I said, no, I'm not an actor. I don't, I don't want to do that. She said, oh, please, can you just just try it out? You know, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. She goes, I've seen you being a cop with the kids. I'm like, that's the difference between telling children off and riding their bikes too fast and being like in a movie. And anyway, she's such a nice person that I felt compelled to not say no to her. And she said, just come and have a chat with me and, you know, we'll just talk about it. And if you don't like the idea, I'll leave you alone. I said, oh, okay. And so I went on a Saturday morning and I was feeling a little bit under the weather, to be fair. I'd had a fun Friday. And so Saturday wasn't looking that great in the morning. And um, I turned up and it was, she'd organized an audition that I didn't know about with Cohen Holloway. And I was like, oh, goodness. And so she just basically was like, just say what you'd say if you're a cop. I was like, okay, just trying not to be kind of sick. And then... Um, <laughs> Then I just made up some cop stuff, which I, did, I had no idea what I was doing, with her and Lauren Taylor. And then she, I think, called me the next day and said, oh, yeah, Jermaine and Taika loved it. You're, you're in the movie. I said, what? Jermaine, Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi like those famous people? I was like, oh, okay, great. And so then I had to be in a movie. And it's all turned to custard from there. I mean, it's an incredible story, really. Like, uh, to the point where your character's name in the movie is literally just your name yeah well that's that's Jermaine's fault I blame him for that because again what I turned up to see I had no idea what I was doing there was no script for what we do in the shadow so I, did, what, I didn't even have words to learn I just was like turned up put on my uniform and the first time I met Jermaine it was obviously a little bit nervous you know a little bit shy and um he just came up to me and he's just always so lovely matter of fact friendly he's like so uh Karen um what's your name gonna be and I said well shouldn't you know what my name's gonna be because it's your movie he's like I don't know what is your name? I said, O'Leary. He's like, yeah, that's so cop. And so that's how it went. So then we just ended up with O'Leary and Minogue because they hadn't done the homework and made up names for our characters. I was just policeman too, apparently. <laughs> so you do this movie, this wonderful little yeah, – I mean, you've come into it probably with the lowest of expectations about what this project is of anybody who's involved in it. So – what happens in your life when suddenly this little movie becomes much bigger than a little movie? Well, I, and first and foremost, it just always made me laugh. I thought, this is so funny. How weird did I'm in a movie? And then I remember the, the you, there was a few reviews down in New Zealand, and quite often they would mention the cop bits, and I was thinking, that's weird that they even remembered the tiny little bit that the cops are in. And then it was not till like about a year later that um, Paul Yates, who's the unsung hero of Wellington Paranormal, who does pretty much all the hard work for none of the, the glory or credit, um, he arranged a meeting with me and Mike said, oh, you know, we've had really good feedback and Jermaine and Tyke and I have talked about it and we think maybe you guys should have your own police show. And I was like, do you? <laughs> it was like when Tina said you should be try out. I was like, really? And then and she was, they're like, yeah. I was like, yeah, I can, yeah, I can do that. Sure, and yeah, so there we go. It's it's it really genuinely is quite amazing though because as you were saying, you were in 
early childhood teaching, which I imagine was that your passion when you left school? Was that what you wanted to pursue? Well, I I sort of dropped out of, no, I didn't drop out. I left school, went to university, did politics and journalism, funnily enough, um, and then didn't really make any friends. I was like, oh, no, I flagged this. And then thought, oh, no, teaching's pretty cool. So I went to do primary school teaching, thinking that early childhood is just like babysitting. You know, it's just like little kids. That's a waste of your time. That's not real education. But in the process of getting kicked out of teachers' college twice, which is apparently quite a good achievement and one I'm very proud of now in hindsight, um, I started working, relieving at an early childhood centre, the one that I worked at for 29 years. And I just thought the more time I spent there, I was like, hang on a second, this is actually where we need the most vibrant, passionate, engaging people. Because this is where people are working out who they are, you know, like this is where children are working out who am I, how do I relate to others, how do I relate to a diverse range of people. And how do I form positive relationships? So then I was like, this is what this is where I need to be. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's good that showbiz has sucked another person out of that important industry then. Yeah, well, like good. I said, education is a waste of time. You know, the pay is shit, to be fair. Um, this acting malarkey is really good. <laughs> <laughs> so what was uh, – you talk about early childhood. One of the, the topics that I'm very passionate about on this show is how we imagine ed- education, what the importance of education is, mm. and what we really – should be teaching kids at that age. You've been there on that cold yeah. place. What are the important lessons that we that we should be teaching, or what are we getting right and wrong? Well, I think I mean, again, it's it's funny that especially in New Zealand, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but I, I've had heard rumours that it is that early childhood is so undervalued as part of the educational um, you know framework, where it's actually the one where we do the most complex learning, and I think the most complex learning and the learning that's essential, especially in this current global kind of time that we exist in is the ability to form positive relationships with a diverse range of people. And so to be able to do that, you need to have, you know, you have lots of really good positive personality traits. You need to work out how to bring out the best parts of you and then sometimes know how to hold back some of those parts that maybe stop those positive relationships from forming really well. And I think, yeah, just being open to new ideas, different people, different ways of being and being understanding about that and being kind, that's the most crucial thing. You know, and often once you get to primary school, it's all very formulaic. It's very very narrow, the way that we view education. Um, and I think that often people aren't seen as successful because what they do is not the prescriptive um, version of education that we still value, which is ridiculous because it's been around since the industrial age and it's so old-fashioned, it's absurd. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? I mean, particularly in this ever-evolving world. Like, I mean, we live in this new universe where, you know, a third of the jobs that kids will be doing in their adult life aren't, aren't even imagined yet, aren't even invented the, yet. And Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we've still, we still bang on about reading, writing, arithmetic. I mean, those, that was back in the industrial when, you, you know, you, could, you learnt the stuff. It was, it was set. You learnt the right answers. You knew how to do something. You did it over and over again for the rest of your working life. Whereas now, what we need is people that can think outside of that box, that don't want to follow what the answers tell you to follow, that have got innovative um, new ideas and know how to solve problems and also know how to do that all whilst relating to other people really positively. Uh, so on this uh, podcast, we have a vague premise, and it is the mm. vaguest of all premise, but the premise is I ask people if they have a life philosophy of some kind. It can be in relation to anything, work, life, love, Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. But I do like to ask people regardless, do you have one? Cricket. <laughs> just the word cricket? Because I'll just need a it's, little bit more than that. Okay. Uh, or maybe I'll change from cricket. I do love cricket. I'm passionate <laughs> about it. But maybe it's not how I live my whole life. Um, I think going back to my early childhood teaching and what I've just talked about, and even with the acting stuff, I've found this, the same sorts of things um, end up providing you with new opportunities. And that is forming positive relationships with other people and how to do that and how to make sure that other people are feeling valued for whoever they are and in whatever form they take. 
So that's an interesting, uh, that is a good life philosophy. Has it been always something that's been part of your DNA? Like, can you tell me a little bit about where you might have started to learn those lessons yourself in your life? Yeah, but I mean, potentially, I guess, growing up as someone who I am, which is me, um, and who potentially didn't didn't fit into a stereotypical stereotype, um, or, you know, the the general run-of-the-mill mould for what a, a girl is understood or perceived to be, um, meant that I was always potentially aware of the need to positively advocate for difference and to see that as something that should be valued, not as something that's a hindrance. And, you know, the, the, again, even going back to education, we've got this thing where it's everyone, we just want everyone to feel the same. And I say, no, we don't want everyone to feel the same. I think we want everyone to be seen as different and that difference is what we should be celebrating. Um, so I guess for me, knowing that I was, you know, a tomboy and someone that was, you know, was playing cricket all the time or all the other girls were playing elastics or whatever, not all the other girls, but, you know, those children that at that time identified as female playing elastics um, I guess I knew I was always different but then maybe I've sort of hopefully tried to turn that into something that's actually really beneficial and good and can hopefully make help other people see that their difference is, is really valuable okay so your attitude to that now seems incredible was this always the case because normally when you hear these stories of you know kids you know acknowledging that they're different understanding that they're different you know finding that they don't fit into whatever the stereotypical mm. norms are of how society operates they can often be very traumatic and emotional and hard times for children as well was that part of your story if it would make for a bit of podcast i could make up a, like a something no i want the truth no i like, to, no, know, the, no, I like yeah. to know what your real experience was well i guess i was very fortunate that i had um a lovely family a lovely mum and dad and two sisters who you know we, we always got on really well so i was very i i started this sort of not duty but you know this understanding or this way of thinking from a pretty privileged position to be fair and I know there's lots of people that aren't in a, a position as lucky as I was um, so I always had the support of my my family and and also I guess I as someone who likes the odd chat I found it fairly easy to connect with people and to make friends um, and I think again humor has been a really positive tool in terms of you know bringing up issues or, or things that maybe people have got a, a trouble with and then making them feel more relaxed because you can never laugh about things without it having to be horrible um, yeah, so I was, I mean, obviously I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder for a long time at, at high school and in my early 20s I used to get into, a, you know, got into a couple of fights over, you know, with, because I had a bit of a bad attitude. Um, but now I feel like I've come to realise that that's not the way of the future. It's better just to talk to people. I mean, I can't really imagine you in a fight and yet at the same time I'm quite excited by the idea well, of imagining you I, in a fight. I, I'll tell you one to imagine. I picked a fight. This was one of my, my most terrible moments. I was at the Diva, this, this club in, in Wellington, and I was dancing, you know, probably not very well. And then this woman was dancing, and I turned around, I was like, hey, you know, you're dancing in my space. You know when you're 20 and you think that everyone should get out of your way when you're trying to do your really cool dance moves, which are not cool at all? Um, and I turned around, and she was like, she just looked at me, and she's like, what? And I was like, Ugh. And I was like, right, I'm going to get it. And I went, and this is appalling, because I don't condone violence in any way, shape, or form. But I was feeling silly, and so I went to punch her, and I punched her and she just stood absolutely still, like she hadn't felt anything. And then she just turned around and went, boof, in the side of my ear. And I was like, ah. And I sort of crumpled to the ground like a fool. And the bouncer came out and was like, you, on the ground, get out. I was like, yeah, no, be cool, be cool. And then I realised that there was the captain of the women's black, all blacks, who I just tried to punch, Farrah Palmer, which is like, of all the people to try and pick to fight, you know, I should have just chosen someone from the cricket team. Uh, so you did mention cricket as part of the story, and it feels like it's come up a yeah. few times now, which means I think it is, mm. you know, um, it, this might be a little integral to the story. So 
Where, where did cricket come into your life? Because, at, look, it's going to – there's going to be a few philosophy listeners who are like, oh, for fuck's sake, he's going to talk about cricket again, isn't he? Because any time I have an opportunity to talk about cricket on this podcast, I had Tim Payne, the captain of the Australian cricket team, yeah. on this podcast. I had Matthew Hayden on this podcast. Matthew Hayden oh. barely talked about cricket. I was so angry. I talked to him for two hours all about the rest of his life. I was like, why can't we just talk about cricket? Oh, exactly. God, come on. Look, I'm more than happy to talk about cricket, you know. Uh, well, I, yeah, what do you want to know about Yeah, it? where did it come into your life? Where's cricket? I want to know what the cricket story in your life is. Cricket story is that growing up in Miramar, um, I used to go, I used to, I always liked sport, and then every Saturday my dad would go and play for his mercantile cricket team, who were a hilarious bunch of weird men, and I'd go and watch every Saturday without fail and just help with the gear and, you know, do that kind of stuff, and I just remember loving it. It was my favourite place to be on a Saturday, watching dad and his funny mates doing their wheeze down the gully thing, and, you know, and then at one point I remember dad... <laughs> You know, I was playing with the gear and I had I got I turned myself into Darth Vader, made this really cool mask. Oh, yeah. And then Dad said, Karen, you know you know what that is, don't you? I was like, Yeah, it's my Darth Vader mask. He's like, No. And then I remember seeing where those things go and I thought, I don't really want that on my face anymore. Maybe that's what turned me into a lesbian. No, nah, it's not, but <laughs> Yeah. So I started there. So I, then I started playing playing cricket and then but then ironically again I got into reps as a as a thirteen year old for Wellington. And I remember turning up to the first practice and looking around thinking, oh, gosh, I think I think all these people are lesbians or gay. And it freaked me out, ironically. And so I quit the team and never went back. And Dad's always been disappointed in me for that. Uh, interesting. But you kept a love of cricket in your life. Now, uh, men's cricket, women's cricket, all cricket? Yep, all cricket. I mean, obviously, it's been really nice to see women's cricket on the up in terms of its visibility. Um, and there's been you know some really good double headers down at the basin, which I always like to go to. Um, yeah, so it's been really nice seeing that women's cricket is getting a, a better platform because it should. I mean, it's, it's the same game. It's a great game. Why would you not want to watch women playing it? Especially for me, it's way hotter. Uh, I mean, I think in Australia, I mean, obviously our our female cricket team has been incredibly successful, and you know, it, it's really interesting to see in my lifetime. You know, ten years ago, I think most Australians would barely be able to name an Australian yeah. you know, women's cricketer. Whereas I would say. There's at least five or six of them are probably household names now in this country, and it feels like things have gone forward in leaps and bounds. But if we're going to talk about cricket um, and male cricket at the moment, we should talk about who's the, who's the number one test playing nation. That's exactly what I was going to bring up: is that New Zealand cricket at the moment, like the men's team, is in such an incredible sweet oh, spot. I know we've never we haven't known the likes for a long time, and I remember back in when I used to go and watch them with my dad at the basin. The, I was there when Martin Crow got his two ninety nine and then smashed the dressing room up. I was also there when Brendan McCullum got three hundred at the basin reserve. You know, so those were the sort of the Martin Crow, Andrew Jones days were the real glory days for me watching. You know, Murph Hughes and all those guys. Um, and I feel like we've almost come back to that now, and almost maybe even better. Is there something about what's happening in New Zealand at the moment? I mean, because it's it's funny. I'm mean, being you know, obviously Australia and New Zealand have such a you know, complex relationship in so many different ways, you know. But, you know, we see so many incredibly successful stories out of New Zealand at the moment, whether it be the government and their response to what happened with COVID, whether it be the sporting teams that are punching well above their weight on the international stage. So, like, the idea that the two... Yeah. The number one and number two men's cricket teams in the world, uh, one of them is from the country of New Zealand and the other is from the country of India. Yeah. And you compare the populations and the fact that they've both managed to find 11 people who could compete pretty well equally on the world stage is yeah. incredible. And then you look at a connection you have, which is this showbiz world, through what Jermaine's doing, through what Tiger's doing internationally. Mm. It feels like there is a lot of 
you know, just in every field, there's a lot of stuff coming out of New Zealand. Is that sense? That's what you see from the outside. What is the sense from the inside? Well, that's an, I think that's a very good and interesting question. I mean, again, I still think that New Zealand has that. We, we're often very good at downplaying our achievements as well. Like, we're not really going to be the ones that are screaming from the rooftops, ha-ha, look at us, we're so amazing. And I think sometimes that's to our detriment. So I think if we could work out a positive way to, to celebrate our achievements, I think that would be a step in the right direction. Um, but, yeah, ultimately, I mean, basically, we're pretty pretty bloody good at most things, and it's just, you know, yeah. it's, that's the case. <laughs> Um, are you good at celebrating your own achievements? I, I'm interested in that. No. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I, I don't know. No, probably not. <laughs> don't even want to be too up myself about my ability to celebrate my own achievements. <laughs> no, no. My, my ability to celebrate my achievements is rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but obviously your life's changed a little bit. Does it feel yes. like it's changed? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's been... Um, radical it's been quite um it's been so interesting though and fun and so i'm just so i feel very fortunate but then also and i guess this is where that whole celebrating achievement things come things come in comes in um i was like oh it's just i'm so lucky you know and then i've started to realize well i have i have been lucky there's been lots of lucky opportunities that have come my way but i always say that that goes back to the fact that i have formed positive relationships with a range of people and so then therefore doors potentially will open but I've realised that it, it can't all just be luck. I must be a little bit good at some of the stuff, like being a police officer, and I should take a little bit of credit for that. I was going to say, though, it strikes me, and maybe I'm wrong, like, you know, sometimes I get a vibe for these things and it's completely wrong, uh, but it feels to <laughs> I'll me... I'll tell you if you are. I, I, that I absolutely understand will be the case. You strike me as somebody who actually is a little anti-authoritarian, and so is there an irony that you're playing a police officer? Yeah, it's brilliant because yeah, that, yeah, I think it's perfect. And in fact, when I was when I left high school, my first goal was to go down south, do PE as all these good lesbians should do, and then join the actual police force. But then what happened was I ended up having some interactions, if you will, with the actual police that didn't look good on a piece of paper, apparently, and which means I was which meant I was no longer eligible to join the actual police. So it's now even more ironic that I play a police officer. It's brilliant. <laughs> Because I couldn't have become a real one because I was too naughty. <laughs> Whoopsie. I mean, it's an incredible story, really. Um, well, oh, no, you couldn't write this shit. It is. I mean, but again, I think that you're right. I think there is so much about what you're saying that is true. Where there's always an element of luck. Of course, there is. Somebody's got to see you playing police in the um, er yeah. early childhood centre to identify that perhaps you could do this, and then you've got to like you know find yourself on a set with. Jermaine and Tyke yeah. not with Tom Cruise and Michael Bay because they're, so, they're, not, <laughs> yeah. they're not letting you name your own character, you know. They don't. No, they're not. No, they would, certainly wouldn't. They wouldn't, but, really wouldn't even get to stand on a box. But it's also got to be about the fact that when you are offered these opportunities, you just say yes to them. There's, there, is there an imposter syndrome at all in your life or have you been able to quiet that down just to be able to do these things? Yeah, I think, again, that's a, that's a good question. I was talking to someone um, the other day about this. How I, I do just have a tendency to say yes, and then, you know, that Catherine Tate character that's just like, oh, yeah, I can do that, and she's got no idea how to do it. And I feel like I do sort of have that as just the, well, I may as well try and think, you know, I may as well think I can do it and give it a try, and if it all turns to custard, then I'll just say, well, that wasn't for me. You know, that's why I ended up having a job in retail for at least four weeks, just a couple of weeks ago. Because my friends own a clothing shop and they're like, oh, you must be really busy now as a full-time actor. I said, nah. Now that I'm a full-time actor, I've got no work, but that's cool. 
And they said, oh, you can come work in the shop. And I was like, yes, I could do that. And they said, you don't want to work in retail for 21 bucks now. I was like, yes, I do. So I worked in retail. It was very interesting. Uh, yes. What, how was it interesting? Because I like particularly, uh, I think sometimes when people are doing those sort of jobs, they, I mean, if it is your job, it's your day to day. There is no way to step yep. back from it a little and observe what it is. But you are an actor now. You're going to do this for a limited period of time. It's almost like you're going to to band camp or something. You're going to. Was, what would it be it, like it to was, work in retail camp, right? It was a bit like that. Not that I was using it as like some weird experiment, mm. but it was just like then I was like, you know, and I was just like, oh, I'm just going to try and fit in. And then all the, you know, obviously I was potentially quite a lot older than the other um, the workers in the shop. And I was just like, oh, what should I do? And they're like, we can't tell you what to do. Like, yes, I've got, I don't know what I'm doing. You please tell me what to do. And then it just was, it was, it, I just find anything like that is such a good opportunity to observe humanity and how people interact with each other. And I find that kind of stuff intriguing. Like that's what I found really intriguing when I moved from teaching and doing the TV show. You know, having been around in early childhood, the profession of early childhood. So I got, I knew the relationships that exist between parents and children and families and community. And teachers, you know, which is generally a female-dominated profession, to then go into this acting industry, which is, well, yeah, at the moment, more male-dominated and just a different kind of relationship and hierarchy. I just found it so intriguing to be part of and to watch. Uh, So, I mean, this is kind of what this show is about at its very heart, which is, you know, who we are as human beings, how we Hmm. interact as human beings, what the purpose of this entire stupid grand experiment is like what are your observations of seeing the way people interact do you think that we have changed at all since this global pandemic that we've all gone through is there a shift in global thinking in any way well i I sure as hell hope there is um but again it's one of those weird things when you associate with a certain group of people because they're your kind of people you can get not to want to use the word bubble on purpose because of covid but you kind of live within your own bubble so you've, you're like, oh, yeah, we are changing because the people around you, the people that you spend time with and the people that you appreciate um, are probably like-minded. So you're, you're all kind of moving together. But you've got to remember there's still a huge sections of society who I think aren't moving and, for anything, are moving in the opposite direction, which is really alarming and really troubling. And we've got lots of things to blame for that. Um, and a couple of world leaders or ex-world leaders spring to mind. So from your point of view, because I'm really interested in this, you have like great perspective and clearly it's your observation. What do you... What are, what are our strengths as human beings? What is it that we're doing well? And what is it that we're, I mean, the one that I'm, I guess I'm really interested in is like what we could do better. What is it that we've, you, you touch on bubbles, that's mm. clearly part of it. We understand the idea yeah. of confirmation bias and only hearing our own opinions back and, yeah. you know, technology yeah. allowing us all to be incredibly fragmented as a society. But you, it yeah. feels to me like you're a keen observer of human interaction. I just like your thoughts on, you know, how, how we're going as humans interacting with each other. So I just, yeah, you want my comment on the whole of humanity. Well, that's great. And you've come to the right person because, you know, I've got the answer. No, I think... Um, well, you I wait until that, some of the questions down the end of the podcast if you think this one's too much. <laughs> great. Okay, I've got to go now. But thanks anyway, Will. It's been lovely chatting to you. No. no. I mean, I think that we do, as humans, we do well, well, when we are showing respect and kindness to others and when we do that and we think of people that when we think not so egocentrically and I think again but not everyone has that capability so but I think in generally speaking and COVID potentially has brought this back into the foreground we realize the value of collective strength and by working together and by looking out for one another rather than solely looking out for ourselves um, and I think that hopefully you know that has helped 
a few people think, oh, you know, I need to make sure that I'm making proper, actual, real life connections with other people because that's where all the that's all the brilliance happens, and that's what's going to affect positive change. How are you at having conversations with people who you completely disagree with? I feel like I'm quite good because I feel like I try to. Well, hang on, I'm just thinking about having an argument with my dad, which I had yesterday, but um, that wasn't very good. But that's my dad, so you're always going to argue with your dad. Um, but I feel like, again, if you get if someone you really disagree with, if you go in there hammer and tongs disagreeing back, you, I don't feel like you're going to get anywhere. So it's about trying to listen to what they've got to say and understand their perspective for whatever reason, but then try to gently and positively maybe just open their mind to thinking of things a slightly different way. And, and again, I think being friendly, convivial, and potentially being able to make people laugh every now and again is so valuable in that. And I think, yeah, I, that's that's my strategy. I'm sticking to it. The capacity to change people's minds is important. The capacity to be able to change your own mind is obviously important. Is there something yeah. in your lifetime that you can identify that you've changed your mind about? Um, I can't think of a big, specific, massive change of mind. Um, I guess it's been interesting... Obviously, recently, and again, this is not my fully formed all of my ideas on this, so I need to be not careful with what I say, but I would hope that people understand that it comes with a still building understanding and, and a sort of wealth of knowledge. Um, but I guess it's been interesting watching the increased presence or um, visibility of people that are trans or non-binary and how that's been accepted by society and how we as people have either coped with that or you know, got our backs up a bit about that. And, you know, again, even for the, the lesbian community with with the turf um, thing that's been, and stuff like that that's going on, it has been a really good opportunity to make sure that I am properly thinking about those things and those issues and understanding them from everyone's perspective so that hopefully I can form a view that is, you know, is the one that's for the greater good, I guess. It's yeah. a, it's such a, a good example, I think. I mean, it's certainly something in my own life that if I had to point to something my increased awareness around, you know, trans issues, non-gender binary mm. issues, just even in casual ways. I've, one of the things I've really, and I can't believe it's taken until the year 2021, but I'm currently doing a run of shows at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and I've become super aware of how many times I would casually just say ladies and gentlemen instead yeah. of just like saying yeah. something that is more inclusive. Like not the biggest yeah. of all deals, but just very much just part of the language and the way that I would use it if I'm padding yeah. for what trying to get it. There's other ways to do yeah. it. I can just refer to the Absolutely. audience in a different way. But yeah, and, yeah, and I think you're right. I think that's the win. And early childhood, again, has sort of taught me this. Language is so powerful, but also so it's so changeable and so easy to fit so that it's not discriminating against anyone. You know, it's like when you – like my son goes to, to go to school and the principal, who's a great principal – but we'll always talk about, now, take this home to your mums and dads. And, you know, for Melbourne, my boy's like, well, I don't have a dad. I've got two mums. Like, you know, it's like, how hard would it be? Take this home to your whanau. Take this home to your, the people you live with, you know. It's just those little changes that mean that no one's going to sit there thinking, oh, that's not me. Oh, I am different. Oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable. You know, and I guess that's the same with, you know, with the pronouns up. And it's been good being on the show. Mike Minogue's an absolute legend of a man. And he's been really good, you know, because he's often – with gender as, as well, we do this thing, you know, it's always policeman, and, you know, I'm like, well, just call it police officer, that way it's, it includes everyone, you know, and he's like, oh, but it was a man. I said, yeah, but say we always called it a policewoman, <laughs> would men find that offensive? Oh, no, but it was, you know, yeah, you know, so I just, it's just, you can easily just say police officer and then no, but everyone's happy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's it's funny. I mean, I ca- can't imagine if you're part of a disenfranchised community because I mean, like I've I've literally grown up being you know the you're one of those good cis white men people. Yeah, you? yeah. I'm the I'm the exception. I'm the positive ally. Yeah. Everything's great with me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I, you can't have ever that experience. You can try to understand it. You can try to yeah. hear other people speak about their experiences. But it, I would be pretending. That if and it's mostly with every cause in the world, I get to be a tourist in that world. I get to say, here's what I'm working on in this area. I'm trying to stop yeah. saying, ladies and gentlemen, it's not really yeah. the biggest deal in my entire life to someone who is living those experiences. To someone who is my position, things seem to be moving very quickly now, in a good way, long deserved. Yeah. But it does seem like there is genuine progress being made. I'm, I say that with the proviso that for those who are disenfranchised, I'm sure it feels like it is moving glacially slow still. But do you feel like we are moving in a positive direction around these sort of issues in the world? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. But I still think it's certainly no time to rest on our laurels and there's so much more work to do. And we've got to remember that there are so many people and so many, like, you know, if, if you think about the countries that still treat women absolutely appallingly, like you know, for them, they haven't moved any. They haven't moved anywhere. Okay, maybe maybe you got the vote in two thousand and four, but to be fair, you still can't go out in, in the street by yourself. So, again, we sort of obviously, probably for people like us, we've got a very westernised view of progress, and it's easy not to 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 have to worry about well, you know not to not worry, but to you don't that doesn't come into your consciousness because it's not what you know. You know, as I know this western life and so I'm thinking about that and the issues that come up like you know the thing, terrible things that happen in America I feel that because that's the people that I know whereas it's like terrible things happen in, in Burma but I have a, a, a less of a connection to that so it's about again I think just reflecting on that and opening up and realising that all people should be treated with respect and all people should have opportunities to be whoever they want to be as long as they're not being dicks to other people it's a pretty simple philosophy that's at the core of, you know, most major beliefs, really. You know, do unto others. That's basically what yes. you're saying. Don't be a dick to other people, right? Yeah, don't be a dick is my philosophy. Do you have – does that come from any background of belief system yourself? Like, were you religious? Do you have some broader, you know, belief system mm. around the world? Yeah, nah. Um, I grew up – we didn't. We never went to church. And I, I think my nana was Presbyterian. Um, but no, we've never had like a religious grounding um, in any way, shape, or form. And I sometimes worry that I, I lack a bit of knowledge when it comes to religion. I don't, I don't know heaps about lots of different religions. Um, but I think ultimately, it's even like when you think about early childhood philosophies. You know, so there's like different ways. You've got your Montessori, you've got your Reggio Media, you've got your whatever Steiner. Um, and people get so passionate about one of those. They're like, I'm going to have a centre that's going to be always this. And what I think is, if you've got a diverse range of children, how can one philosophy fit all of those children to the best, for the best, you know? What you want to do, in my opinion, is pull the best parts out of all of those and join them together and use them at the right times in the right context. And so I guess maybe for me, religion's a bit like that too. It's like, well, I'll take the good bits out of Christianity. I won't take the rubbish bits. Um, that bit about their gays not being cool, I'd leave that behind. And then I'll look at, you know, I'll look at Hinduism and I'll take some really great stuff out of that. And then I'll just apply it to whatever context I'm in and the one that's going to work the best. Where, where is it that you do go for advice around your world philosophy? Is it something that you know, you're doing reading on? Is it something that you're having conversations with people about? Or is it something that is just intrinsic inside you and you sort of live that philosophy? I think there's a, an element of it that's intrinsic. Um, but again, I think it, it's just 
conversations and relationships with other people. So you, it's so rich getting to know other people and hearing their points of view. And so just by yeah, having getting to know lots of different people and hearing their perspectives, that that all feeds into who you are and what you believe as a person. And so maybe I try to try to pull on that. What do you maybe think happens? What do you think happens? On, this is not a judgment. This was a question. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, right. You framed it by saying this is not a judgment, this is a question. I'm totally skeptical. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, you know what I would love to know? What do you think happens when yeah. we die? Because this is what we're really oh, yeah, down to, right? What, what do you think yeah. happens when we die? Well, I think you stop breathing, your heart stops beating, and then, I don't really know, but at this point in my life, I think you get buried, hopefully not in a coffin, just like in a piece of muslin cloth, and then you just turn into the earth. And that's that. See you later. Okay. Yeah. So we, you believe that there is nothing more than us being a accident in the corner of the universe that somehow turned into what we are as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And until I get information to the contrary, I'll keep believing that. But I'm open to new ideas. If someone says, hey, look, Karen, I've found it. Actually, you are going to turn into a caterpillar. I'll be like, cool. Great. I love it. But I just haven't had that information yet. Um, yeah. But I'm always open to And I, again, I don't have an issue with what anyone else wants to believe about that as long as it doesn't negatively impact on others. Do you think about death at all? Is it present in your mind? My death or someone else's? Just death in general, I guess. You can interpret that however you want. Yeah, I, I guess, especially, you know, once you start getting, you know, how old are you, Will? 47. 47. Right? Yeah. Um, I guess once you start getting to this sort of midlife time, um, it does become more of a, a thing that you're aware of. And actually, I've got my dad's... Um, got a bit of the old big C, you know, which is not going to end well, which I don't think it generally does. So that brings up thoughts in, around death and what it's going to mean. You know, obviously for him it's going to mean the ultimate thing, which is death. Um, but it's also interesting to think about how death affects the people that are still living and potentially even more, you know, unless, of course, obviously once you're dead, things get worse, in which case that sucks. But ultimately, once, you know, well, yeah, it would. But, you know, but I guess I've, from what I feel, like, once, you, once you have passed away, that's, you've finished there. Whereas the people behind, like you know, like my mum and my sisters or whatever, then it's how we deal with the grief of what's happened that has that will have a continuing impact. Yeah, so I guess that's, you know, I do think about it, yeah. Have you had to deal with losing somebody close to you in your life? I, yeah, my, my, my nana um, was the closest person, um, and I remember that was back in 2006. Um, and then there's been people that have been very close to people that I'm close with, but not, but my nana's been the main one. Yeah, but again, it's, it is not, the, obviously it's a nice thing, but it is a very, again, an interesting time to watch how people are and how people interact and how people cope and the strategies people use when some, something so so massive is going on for them. Yeah. You talked about being a parent. Does being a parent mm. change your attitude to death? Often when I speak to people, they talk about the idea of being so much more aware of their own mortality once they're responsible for another human being. Yeah, they sound like better parents than me because I don't. Really <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I, should, I feel like you're supposed to say that, like, oh, I just you know, I don't really think that. There's some food there. It's like, nah, look, it's good. I've got someone that can look after me when I'm old, hopefully. Uh, no, no, I don't think so. But again, maybe that's just because I've got a stupidly optimistic, cheerful outlook, and so maybe that's not something that sort of preys on my mind too much. Uh, is there, when it comes to that idea, then because I'm very interested in. When somebody does have an optimistic outlook, what happens when you, you have a day when you're not optimistic? Is there those days? Like, 
there must be surely you're a human being there's got to be times you get knocked you know knocked mm. off your feet a little bit what happens when someone who is by nature cheerful and optimistic suddenly runs into something where they're not yeah well i guess i get into a bit of a i can get into a bit of a slump you know and then i just forget a little bit kind of petulant and childish but then i end up getting so bored of myself being like that that i can't handle it and i'm like for goodness this is so boring <laughs> And so then I kind of, you know, get out of it because it just it does my head. I can't handle it. And so I'm like, oh, this is just a waste of my time. So, but I'm very lucky and I do feel fortunate that I am, am blessed with this disposition because I know a lot of people have a lot of trouble with, with, with mental health and all that kind of stuff. And I really feel for them. And I, yeah, so, so that, I guess, but that to that end, if I can use my cheerful optimism to help provide support or anything to anyone, then I, I feel like I absolutely have a responsibility to do that. There's a bit of a cliche that, you know, often a plumber is the person who'll never fix the toilet yeah. at home. And, you know, like certainly my partner would sometimes suggest that I save my comedy for people yeah. out in the world, <laughs> not so much for around yeah. the house. Um, when, when you've been in early childhood education, does it make you a better parent or does it, or does it go the opposite? Well, this, yeah. it was very interesting having a child because obviously I've, I've, been, I've watched parents with their children as a teacher and just thought, why don't they get their bloody kids to do what they want them to do? I can get their kids to do what they want yeah. them to do. And I was thinking, oh, they've got no, no idea. And then I had a child and realised that parenting and teaching are very different things. And the nature of the relationship between a parent and a child compared to a teacher and a child means that you know, parent-child relationships, the child's got all the power, and it's up to you to try and try and claw some back if you can. Um, so I guess, yeah, when I became a parent, um, I just realised that, yeah, I did my best teaching at work still with the, with the children that I was teaching, and my best version of parenting was my son. But I was, yeah, I was never his teacher. Well, I mean, we came to Adelaide every day, but yeah. When it comes to lessons you want to impart, to the next yes. generation, how does that start? What what lessons do you start? In early childhood, like when I was at work, yeah, yeah. But even oh, just yeah. with your own family, I mean, what yeah. is it that what is it the kids you know need to know most importantly when they're starting yeah. out? I think what they need to know is who they are as people. I think they need to know how to treat other people with respect and kindness. I think they really need to know how to have fun. I think fun is hugely undervalued, both in teaching and in life in general. Um, and I think that they need to be able to have an open mind and an, an ability to reflect on, on things and, and to think about things in lots of different ways. Um, and, yeah, and hopefully just be good contributing members of society. One of the things that you mentioned there was fun, and I yeah. want to just circle back on that a little bit more yeah. because I think that what you're saying is absolutely true, and I think that I also – I am guilty sometimes. Like, you know, I work in comedy as an industry, yeah. and – sometimes forget that I'm meant to be having fun. You know, like, it. There, yeah. I, I see the irony of what that is. Like, why is fun so important? Just explore that a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just, again, from teaching and just from my general life, I think having fun is, is such a powerful way of being and way of doing things. If you look at children that are, you know, at, at the centre, children that are having fun are going to be learning the most by fun. Um, and again, often as teachers, I thought, I can't have too, too much fun. I can't be too silly. Otherwise, the kids won't, won't respect me. They won't pay me any attention. That's the complete opposite. The more fun you are, the more you're having fun and engaging with children, the more that they will respect you. And therefore, they'll listen to what you say when, when you need to say something that might not be fun. Um, and I just think fun just brings such joy. If you look at um, the positive be- the benefits of laughter and, and what that can do for people. Um, and I think, yeah, so to be able to provide 
oh, now I'm rambling about fun. It's not, it's being pretty boring. If this should be a fun conversation about fun, and I've <laughs> fucked it up. Damn it. Okay, cancel that. Cut that bit out. That fun bit was shit. <laughs> we've we've <laughs> ruined the fun by talking about fun. I know, we've dissected fun yeah, yeah. to um, the point where fun really is no fun. fun. <laughs> so it's really fun, so you just got to do it, you know, because then it's, everyone's having a fun time, you know? And uh, I always have fun um, living and laughing at uh, yeah. Actually, do you know, I'll tell you what, Will, I'll tell you one thing that's fun. I'll tell you, you can put this in your podcast. Um, I've got a kids band. Did you know that? No, I didn't know this. Tell me. Oh, well, I, me and my good friend Tom Watson, who used to be in some actual mm. bands in Wellington, like he'd like a whole stuff. He used to live in Melbourne, actually. Um, he came to work at my centre and we started a kids band called Fun and Funner. And it's on Spotify. It's The album's called Better Than Normal. And it's just a, a range of songs that I think, you know, often early childhood music for kids is so boring. And this goes back to the how valuable fun is. The, the music is so boring that makes you want to poke your eyes out with a compass. You know, it's just like, why do children, just because they're young, deserve to have such rubbish music? So me and Tom tried to make an album which was, you know, it ranges from punk rock to, um, you know, to all sorts of genres. And I just think, again, that just sort of just speaks to our sort of emphasis on wanting fun to be part of everything that we do. Yeah. Okay, so I, this, I'm super fascinated by this. Fun and funner. Yeah. Now... Firstly, I can't help you, you, you know your conversation. You, it feels like you were having a little bit of you're throwing a little shade at the Wiggles. And as an Australian, I've got to like just step up a little for, on behalf of our greatest national international <laughs> export, apart from ACDC. No, you guys got so, and crowded house. You guys did really good with crowded house. <laughs> <laughs> hey, two thirds of the band were from Melbourne. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just on paper, two thirds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, okay so um, what I am fascinated by is how do you choose subject matter for these songs like because that's I think part of when you're talking about kids songs often it's the subject matter what it is that you're talking about in the songs that's important so where did where did the inspiration for that come from the inspiration came by trying not to make it too important because I think often it's like well kids love dinosaurs let's sing a dinosaur song well, kids love diggers. We'll do a digger song. It's like, you know what? Kids love having fun. We'll just do a fun song. And so our songs, I just, I sort of just started writing them. Oh, just be, you know, obviously being in a new child center is the perfect place to try stuff out on the guitar and sing ridiculous songs and see if the kids like any of them. And so there are a few that are about like your general sort of your helicopter song. There's a mermaid song about things in the ocean. There's a song called Gay Blades, which is really good, which I basically had to make up a song for this kid. And he wanted a Beyblade song, you know, those spinny things. And I, so I made this quite punk rock song. And um, then when I was recording the album, I was like, oh, I better not call it Beyblades. I'll probably get in trouble with like Nickelodeon or something. So I changed to Gay Blades, which is even cooler because it's just like spinning <laughs> rainbow gay disc things having a really great old time. Yeah. yeah. So I think the inspiration is just songs that get children either moving or thinking or laughing. Those are the, those are the three things that I look for in any of the songs that we play. I think you've actually stumbled on the way that we could revolutionise early childhood education because the Karen O'Leary story feels like the perfect story. Instead of encouraging actors to go to acting school, we've got to get them all into early childhood education, Absolutely. putting on shows for the kids, practising their songs, doing yeah. all this sort of stuff, and then we just say, you know what, if you want to get discovered, you shouldn't be at like a party at the Ivy. You have got to be teaching some kids in a playground Absolutely. and we just send all the scouts via there. It solves both problems. Yeah, it's win-win. Absolutely, you know, it's, it's entirely right. Uh, do you care about being remembered? We talk about death and the idea of death is then legacy. Um, do, is having a legacy as a human being important to you? Mm, yes and no. 
it's the end of my answer. Yes and no. no just joking. But yeah. That'd be yeah. great if no, it was. If yes you just and went, no. That's it. Thank you very much. Uh, it's no. nice to be um, on the show. I think, well, I guess <laughs> what I would hope would be remembered. I guess, this, this is a serious part, Will. You're laughing now. I'm trying to be serious. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Excuse no, you me. Um, Sorry, I was just—I was having a little fun. I'll, I'll stop that. Yeah, look, it's not—it's not fun and funner interview, is it? No, look, um, I think I, I don't want to be remembered for myself as a person, but I would be more than chuffed if potentially some of the ways of being, or the, the messages that I try to get out into the wider world, and again, being like a faux celebrity or a whatever, it, it's amazing how that provides you with a platform that you potentially wouldn't otherwise have. So if you can use that platform to get positive messages out or to show a different way of being I think it's even being on the show the way I am which is obviously pretty good um, just to be visible in a mainstream TV show you know if that means that there's five young women growing up they're like oh you know they're cool and that's great and that makes a different a positive difference with them in their lives then I think that's what I would hope would be not necessarily remembered but, but achieved throughout my, my time. Uh, and what what about the world itself? I mean, when you are a parent, you've got to have a look at the actual world itself and think, what is this going to look like in 10 years? What is this going to look like in 20 years or 30 years? I mean, obviously, climate being one of the hugest challenges that is going to face the next generation, but not just climate. Like, when you look at the future that your child, the world is going to grow up in, are you positive about it? Are you worried about it? Like, I mean, I'm interested in your I perspective. I don't have to see it. No. No. Mm. Um, again, I've... <laughs> For better or worse, I always have a, an optimistic view. I'm like, well, look on the bright side. You know, could be worse. <laughs> you know, could it? I don't know. But um, so, I don't yeah, know. Well, it could be theoretically. Like we could all have had Donald Trump as our president, but we didn't. You know, we had Jacinda. She was great. Um, no, I guess. Again, I feel like COVID has been a good kind of catalyst for potential progressive movement in the right direction. Um, so I think if, as long as we keep uh, keep remembering the position we're in with COVID and the fact that it's still having such a massive impact on the world, and but that we use that as a, a, a way to um, proceed positively and, and you know and advocate for positive change, then we could be moving in a better direction than we have been for a long time. And I feel optimistic about that. See, I, I like this relentless optimism. I mean, you know, there is part of me that every time you say things like, it could be worse, my brain immediately goes to, yeah, it's going to be worse. That's what she's yeah. reminding oh, me no. of. Not, not that we should be positive, that it's going to be worse. Well, look, it's, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> end of the day. <laughs> so, <laughs> end of the day, it's night time. So we just wake up the next day and see if it's a good day. Uh, what do you look like at your best? So if you're talking about when you're absolutely 100% being, yeah. you know, Karen O'Leary, what is what does that look like? I look like I'm having fun and I'm probably hanging out with a, a group of people that I think are cool and I might be having a bit of a dance, you know? Um, that's probably what... And what's the song that's most likely to get you on the dance floor? Give us an insight into, like, if, if something comes on, what is the one that you cannot resist going out to the dance floor? Total Eclipse of the Dark Heart. Total Eclipse of the But that's more mm. of my karaoke song, so it's not mm. necessarily my dancing song. Um, so my dancing song, now that I can never think of songs when people say think of this song, I'm like, um, I don't know. Anything. I'll dance to anything. Okay. Well, I mean, your I'm, da- no, hang on. Well, what's your oh, dancing song? Let's okay, this is what you're saying. Song. 
Uh, yeah. Well, so okay, this, uh, well, I'll tell you a little story by way of me okay. trying to think of what it would be in my case. But um, I used to, when I first started doing stand-up comedy as my part-time job, I used to DJ for weddings. So you got very used to knowing which songs were very good at getting people out on the dance floor. Yes. That was, And I would say anything by George Michael. Like if you put yes. like some good George, George Michael yeah, at, yeah. A, at a wedding, just in that demo that young people – Old people, everyone in between, George Michael. That was your your standard go-to. doesn't matter. Just every about half an hour, chuck in fast yeah. love, chuck in faith. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Just chuck no, in one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking now as well, now you've made me think of all those old songs from, you know, maybe, you know, a bit of Cindy Lauper. You can't go oh, wrong with yeah. you just want to have fun, although they obviously want to have more than just fun now. So I don't know if you can still even sing that song now. But, you know, <laughs> well, have fun and change the world and be treated equally and – I mean, it feels like your philosophy is a lot about having fun. So I think Cindy was important to you. Talk to me about, you talked about that idea of, you know, it's nice that people will be able to see, you know, you on TV Mm. and maybe be like, oh, there's someone who's a bit like me who's, you know, on TV being fun and being funny and, you know, all these sort of, you know, things. Who, Who were you looking at when you grew up? Who were the people that you were able to look at and say, here's somebody who, who I identify with? Well, there wasn't really anybody. Actually, I was on a the spin-off did a, a video, a web thing about, you know, how were you visible when you were growing up? Did you see yourself in media? And I remember my first um, experience of seeing someone that I was like, oh, they, they, you know, it just spoke to me, was the Top Twins, obviously, you know, good old Top Twins. And it's ironic now that one of the Top Twins plays my mum in Paranormal. It's just brilliant. I mean, talk about perfect casting. <laughs> Um, but I remember specifically watching them on TV when I was five and going over to my next-door neighbours who were staunch Christians. And they said, oh, did you watch the top ones? They were so cool. So I just, something about them, I was like, yeah, those guys are great. And I remember um, my, my next-door neighbour saying, you shouldn't watch them, Karen. They're lesbians. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, nah, nah, I know. I didn't watch them. And I had no idea what a lesbian was. And I was like, oh, I really thought they were funny, yes. You know? And then I, that was the first time I came across the word lesbian. I was looked at that and I was like, hmm. But then, you know, I still, I still remember seeing those guys growing up and thinking, oh, they're pretty cool. Now, look, I'm even dressed like one today. Look, I've got the white shoe on. Well, what about that for you? Was it, I mean, you talked about being younger and identifying, you know, like with, you know, being a tomboy, going to dad's cricket and all those yeah. sort of things. But was there a point where you, it really clicked in your head that where you started to go, oh, this is who I am? Yeah. Um, well, it actually took me a stupidly long time, which I'm disappointed in myself about. Um, you know, I guess, but again, there's that, all that pressure of when you're at high school and you're just trying to kind of fit in with everyone and you don't want, you know, don't want anything that's going to make you stand out or be a weirdo. You know, it's, it's bad enough anyway. So, you know, you just sort of did that jet, that sort of common lesbian thing where you're like, oh, I don't really mind if it's a man or a woman. I just care about their personality. And then gradually I just was like, oh. I don't. I do care if it's a man, and that's not. You know, I. You know, not in a bad way. Love them, but I just couldn't couldn't be imagine being in love with a man. And I remember telling my mum and dad for the first time, going home and saying, "Mum and dad, I've got something to tell you." You know, I was all ready for this big moment. You know, it's obviously big for us gays. You straight people don't get that, do you? He's like, "Who cares? You've got a girlfriend, whatever." But anyway, so I went home and I was like, "I've met someone," and they're like, "Oh yeah, it's not a man," and they're like. We know. Like, oh. And that was it was the most flat coming out party thing I've ever, ever heard of. We know. I said, like, oh, okay. Whatever. I don't know how you knew. So that was my coming out story. 
um, I asked people a question on this show, but I think that your answer, I feel like somehow this question might not be relevant to you because um, it has to do with a little, uh, it's, it's as close as I get to having an inspirational slogan in my office. And it's just a little okay. uh, thing that I have on my desk and it just says, what would you love, attempt? Love, love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's just a, cool. I've got that. Yeah, it's just a little cat hanging in a window and it says, hang in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, nice. No, sorry, you carry on. I'm interrupting. It says, um, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? So it's meant to remind me to not be thinking about whether something will be successful or otherwise when I say yes to it, just to try to attempt things that I want to attempt and you know do them as if they're going to be successful. Now, it strikes me a little that you already live your life a little bit like that but i normally ask people what they would attempt if they were guaranteed success do you want my honest answer yeah okay i would go into politics hard right i'm gonna go left today I'm <laughs> oh okay right side yeah okay, um, sure. yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah either that or go in a movie with jane lynch that's the other one Okay, so politics is interesting to me, though. Why politics? Like, I mean, I know you studied politics and journalism originally, which is actually what my degree is in politics and journalism. I, I, I that, that was interesting to me. But what? <laughs> but why politics? Um, because I guess, again, as someone who has tried to advocate for for groups of people, especially disenfranchised or people that are um, on the sort of edges of society, or you know, we've got to remember, like New Zealand's seen in this positive light, but we've still got we've still got some pretty massive problems in terms of you know, groups of people that are not getting what they should, you know, with poverty and child poverty and domestic violence and all that kind of stuff. So I guess if you can go into politics and have a positive approach to achieving good change for lots of different people, then I think that is a vehicle for that. Um, often it's misused and it, I know, certainly know it's not easy, but if it means that you can, you've got a bit of a platform and you can try to affect positive change, then I would feel like I've got a responsibility to do that. Okay, so it's day one, you know, you, you've yeah. attempted this thing, you're guaranteed success. You're suddenly Prime Minister, Prime Minister of New Zealand. Yeah. What is the number one thing, the priority of your government that you want to achieve? It would be reducing the inequality between the haves and the have-nots. So that's a great area. I mean, and it's at the basis of so many of the issues that we face in our society. Yeah. The idea that, uh, you know, there's enough resources worldwide, really, you know, yeah. if we doled them out all properly, everybody would have at yeah. least enough to survive. The reason that people don't is because there are economic systems built where we'll rather throw out, you know, good food rather than give it to people who are hungry yeah. because it doesn't suit the economic system and the disparity between the rich getting richer and the the rest of society being left behind has never been greater. So yeah. when you look at the world, is that – I mean, I think it's probably the number one issue we're facing because yeah. even the other things like climate change directly are impacted by the idea that our society is so – uh, unequal. Excuse like, me. how do we get over this? How do we start to solve this problem? Well, that's a very big question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's okay, well, that's why you're not running for politics. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't know. Um, you guys just cheer up. We're stopping such shit. It's about with our money. No, I guess, again, it's, it's about putting in, in, putting in positive, putting in good infrastructure. And, and we've got to shift perception. We've got to shift public perception right. so that people... Um, have an awareness of, you know, like even with in New Zealand with the housing crisis and all that kind of stuff, you've got all those, like my mum and dad and the baby boomers and all those people who are like, yeah, but I've worked hard all my life, so I deserve to have my 17 houses and I don't want to have to pay any tax on that. So it's about how do we shift their, the everyone's view so that it's saying like, well, actually, 
you have worked hard. That's really great. But what's happening now is 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 having a really negative effect on the people you know below you in society. And we need to we need to fix that. And you've got the power to fix it because you've got all of this resource and you've got this privilege. So how can we make those people think what I want to do is use what I have to help others rather than what I want to do is use what I have to help myself. If I had a magic wand and I could give you any skill in the world, mm-hmm. any skill, does not matter what it is, what skill would you love to have? Um, hang on, it's, gonna, it's coming to me. Um, what Can you just tell me what your one would be? That's what I'm thinking. I, 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 mine changes often. Yeah. A lot of the time it has to do with sports. I often like have fantasies of you know being particularly good at one type of sport. Um, lately it's been to be the world's greatest freestyle rapper. I would just love to be able to like amazingly freestyle rap and just bring it out in whatever situation I needed to do. That's, I think that at the moment if I could just have one super skill, it would be the world's greatest freestyle rapper. It's actually funny that you say that because A, I'm really good at rapping, but also B, when I when you were starting to say that, I was like, I know what I actually want to do, and I've, it's been my long held dream for a long time, and that is to be really good at break dancing. So then we could be quite a good team. You could be rapping, I could right. be break dancing, you know, and I because I can do a pretty good backspin. I pulled them out of parties every now and again. It's getting a bit hard now that I'm getting older, and I did do a really good catter splat, which is like the caterpillar, only it just goes up and then splat, which is kind of its whole it's its own move, but I've perfected it. Yeah, but being actually good at breakdancing would be really good. <laughs> well, it'd be great if I was good at freestyle rapping and you were good at breakdancing. And on the rare occasion we were ever in the same room, people were like, oh, sit down, some shit's yeah, about to break hold, off. hold on to your hat because this is going to be something. <laughs> this is. Yeah. Uh, this has been so much fun today Um, thank you so much for agreeing to do this I I, am super excited to get to talk to you I could not be a bigger fan of Wellington Paranormal it is just genuinely such entertaining and hilarious television I think that your performance is incredible everyone in the show is great but you in particular are just an absolute superstar a delight to watch and this has been an incredibly um, fun conversation to have this morning, so I appreciate it very much, particularly because I'm in an empty house recording this like on a duna or duvet, as uh, yeah, duvet, yeah. you know, for, for you, Karen. Um, and I think in the back we've had some recorded music. Is that what is, have we had some recorded music? Oh, am I it, hearing recorded music? I, hang on a minute. Hang on a second. Eilish, 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 come here. Please? Sorry. <laughs> just wait. It's worth the wait. Bring your flute out for a minute. Right. Just, What's a just flute? play a little bit of flute behind me. Why? Because I just need you to, because it's going to be lovely. <laughs> just play a bit of flute. Yes. It was not recorded. It's the flute. We called it a recorder. <laughs> um, oh, okay. Now, see, this is beautiful now. Like, accompanied by flute in the background. Thank you very much. I didn't realise that. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> There you go, and that's our musical interlude for today's podcast. We've got Irish Wilson on the flute there, and wasn't that glorious? I mean, the flute is still, I I learnt flute at high school, which was a very poor decision for a country kid to really make when it came to music lessons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got to meet a lot of girls. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's paying dividends for us, but you know, yeah. (laughs) Uh, 
this is the final question of the show. Okay. Everybody should watch Wellington Paranormal, which is on uh, SBS On Demand in Australia, but uh, available in all sorts of places all over the world, and I believe become, coming available in even more places yes. in the next few months, I am Radical. informed. So, yeah. Uh, so, okay, so people listen to this all over the world. So if you can't get Wellington Paranormal yet, it is hopefully Just coming to where you are very soon. It'll be coming soon. Uh, one final question. Yeah. I have a time machine. I do not have a time machine for legal reasons, but for the sake of this question, I do have a time machine. Mm-hmm. I can take you to any point in the future, any point in the past. You can go to your own life. You can visit someone else's life. You can even change something about your life if you really feel you need to. What you do not need to do, unless it's your particular passion, is go back and kill Hitler. I will send someone appropriate back right. for those sort of yeah. things. Not, not your job. This one's just personally for you to have whatever sort of trip you would like to have on a time machine. Where would you like to go, Karen? I'd go to the Basin Reserve um, in the, when Martin Crowe got his 299, Andrew Jones got 186. And um, I was there with my dad, and my dad had got me to sneak his beers in and the special cushion that we emptied out stuffing off, and he would sneak the beers in and get me to carry it because it wasn't suspicious. So I always felt very proud to be able to get my dad's DB drafts in. So I would be back there sitting on the bank, watching the cricket and having such a glorious time and probably eating about 17 hot dogs on a stick. Thank you so much for doing this today. This has been brilliant. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed it. Head to tofop.com to check out all of our other shows. And if you want to listen to another episode of Philosophy right now, why not scroll up in your feed, find the episode with Shelley Ware, uh, who talks about some very similar topics in terms of the education system and being a teacher in her episodes. Here is a little snippet of that. I'm creating a space where I'm allowing children to be their best version of themselves. So whatever that is, whatever they see themselves and as, a, as who they want to be when they're older or who they want to be that day or that week. But it's all about creating a space for them to, to explore new things, to learn new things and be the best version of themselves pretty much. Thanks again for listening, guys. Make sure you check out all of our other episodes. We would absolutely love you to indulge and binge uh, a bunch of philosophy episodes in this next week. But we will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.